having someone with special needs as a part of like your close family or court group or whatever, it really does change you for the better. And just like how you respond to people, how you see the world, your patience level, all these different things. I remember praying when I found out she was going to be a girl. I pray she is a strong girl to to help her brother and to think how her life will be different had her brother been born with totally normalized and could navigate just as easy as she can and and how she's going to be a different person a because person, of it yeah. and like having Sophie there to be a part of this and um and be his biggest fan is just something that I think as a parent, it's just, it's beautiful. This is the Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who aren't living for themselves or even just seeking to improve themselves, but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much a destination where you arrive as a journey that you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. What happens when the most beautiful moment of your life turns out to be the most painful moment? What happens when your life has been dedicated to beauty, to capturing visual beauty, the visual beauty of the world, and it turns out that the person you most love will never be able to see beauty? What is on the other side of that kind of loss? These are questions that Ben and Laura Harrison had to answer after their first child was born. And the way they answered those questions ends up being a remarkable story of redemptive entrepreneurship. Redemptive, the very word, implies that something has gone missing in the world, something that has to be restored. And the Harrisons' own journey of something going missing, of losing something very precious, even as they gained someone very precious, also opened up a way to bring restoration. They're the founders of Jonas Paul Eyewear. It's a super simple idea that strangely has rarely been attempted. They make great-looking glasses for kids. I wish I had had these when I was a kid. And the business also provides the resources to prevent and treat childhood blindness in parts of the world where that treatment is often not available. This is a great story that combines parenting, fashion, building a business, charity, and discovering that beauty means something very different from what we think it means. When did you start to imagine that you'd be trying to build things from scratch the way that you have? Was this was Jonas Paul I were your first attempt to build something? Or I think there were others, as I understand. Yes. Yeah. So we kind of fell into entrepreneurship to a certain extent. We in undergrad, I was computer graphic arts with a photography minor. Laura mm-hmm. was communications. We met and fell in love in undergrad. Then I moved up to Grand Rapids to get my Master of Fine Arts in Photography. 
And I think being in college, being creative, being a photographer, we had a lot of friends kind of getting married out of school, looking for affordable photography for their wedding. And so anyway, so we wanted to be destination wedding photographers. And so we ended up kind of being able to travel around and do kind of more exotic weddings and things like that. Then within that, we started to kind of recognize needs within our own industry or running our own business pain points and So we ended up creating some design resources for photographers as well as ended up launching a website template and hosting company Uh, for photographers as well. You know, we were running both businesses and everything was just kind of plugging along. And we waited about seven years Mm -hmm. before kind of wanting to start a family. Yeah. And ended up, you know, kind of had a uneventful pregnancy, et cetera. No indications that there was anything wrong. And And then, then, yeah, ended up having a... A nice long 30 plus hour labor and wasn't getting anywhere, which was unfortunate. And then had to have kind of an emergency C-section, which for your first child is not typically what most people imagine and dream yeah. of when they're creating their birth plans, which I never did because I thought that's just kind of silly to even waste time and energy creating music playlists that I wanted to have while the baby was coming like into the world. My birth plan, I remember right, Ben wrote it was have baby. That was about, that was the end of the birth plan. Keep it short and sweet. I don't remember a whole lot of it because I was obviously somewhat medicated during the entire process, but I do remember the moment when they did bring Jonas over to me and I was laying on the operating table and the very, very first thing I said, and this is pretty much all I even remember, was does he have pupils, uh, which is kind of a weird thing to even bring up in that moment because yeah. it should be more about I just had a child and just so excited about that particular moment. Instead, I was I remember just focusing on that. And then I like to think that first kind of day and he, he was born in the evening, but that kind of first night and into the next morning was kind of just a wonderful time for us because we didn't think anything was wrong with him. And then after that, that night. Next morning, it kind of drastically changed, and the um, pediatrician that was making the rounds came into our hospital room. She just said, Jonas looks great overall, but just something's not quite right with his eyes, and I don't really know what it is, so I'm going to need to call in a pediatric ophthalmologist. And then that doctor took him away for two or two hours or so, which was, I mean, when it's a new baby, that's a long time. Uh to have your baby taken away. And she ended up coming back to our hospital room and yeah, just kind of sucked the life out of the room. And it was really, really hard because just hearing her say, I've never seen anything like this and I don't know what, what it, what's wrong with his eyes. And I just remember laying there in the bed screaming, like, is he blind? Is he blind? And she just kept saying, I don't know. And I don't know, but it doesn't look good. But it doesn't look good. So that kind of led into this medical odyssey, so to speak, Hmm. of going over to University of Michigan and seeing the specialists there. Fast forward, Jonas ended up going through 21 eye surgeries, four cornea transplants, and it was just kind of this seemed like pretty much once a month we were driving over to Ann Arbor Mm -hmm. for these things. But he was born with what they call Peter's anomaly, where essentially his corneas um, were just completely cloudy. So you couldn't really, it was just, you look in his eyes and it was just gray pretty much. Um, You couldn't really see any, anything. And so his eyes would just kind of like constantly roll into his head and he could never focus on anything because he had no real light perception in and couldn't, 
see out. So it was a lot to take in those early years for sure. Yeah. Just the acceptance of what our our new, new normal was going to be versus what you picture it to be when you have your first child. And, right. and it was a lot of adjusting just our expectations on him and not feeling like he did anything wrong mm. and we didn't do anything wrong, mm. but our situation was just going to be different than what we thought it was going to be. If you could send a message back to yourselves, say those first six months, what would you want to tell yourselves that you didn't know then that you know now? That it's going to be okay. (laughs) I don't know. It was just like, there was a lot of depression in those early days. Mm. And just like, because you run, your mind starts racing and like all the what ifs and how his life is going to differ and what his life is going to be like. And just like the difference, like Laura said, between your expectations of your first son and the things you're going to do with them. And, but I think we did have a moment when he was probably a few months, a few months old where we kind of had like a sit down, you know, there are lots of moments of like tears and just questions and all of that. But uh, we kind of had a moment where we kind of sat down and we just said, Hey, we, we both feel like we're kind of like missing out on what he is achieving. Mm -hmm. Cause it was I mean, all parents go through this with their children, like, okay, what milestones is he meeting and which, and he was obviously like behind on everything. And we kind of got to that moment where we felt like we were almost like missing out on him and just enjoying him. It was always like an obsession with maybe how he was different. And I feel like when we kind of came to that realization, it like freed us up to just like find beauty in him and who he is and his achievements. And I feel like Jonas now He's like super sharp and he's learning how to read and can hear music and play it on the piano, match pitches and yeah. stuff. And I think being where we are now and realizing like how far he would come with the quote unquote limitations. Yeah, I think it would ju- would have just been a huge encouragement to us. Uh. I remember personal issues of even taking him into public because I knew people would say things to me and I just didn't even know how to uh. handle comments that complete strangers like to make you feel very uncomfortable and awkward and things that you would never say to a parent that let's say has a child with down syndrome or a child in a wheelchair but for some reason it felt like they couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with Jonas so they'd still just keep pressing and kind of nagging you and but overall I feel like I've gotten so much stronger in myself of just being proud of who he Mm. is. And yes, he uses a walking cane every single day. And he's relying on that as a child is with any other type of device that they might need to help with assisting them and and that that's okay. And it's going to be okay that he's going to learn Braille and that I'm going to be proud of the fact that he can, he's learning multiple languages now. He's, I mean, he's obviously reading and writing print, but he's He's learning Braille and he's reading Braille and he's writing Braille (laughs) and to think he's five years old and he's doing way better than I am in that sense. The people that know him just absolutely love him. His teachers and his classmates, you know, even going in, he started kindergarten and there's obviously the anxiety with starting kindergarten. We're just such like an appearance-based culture and that's where these interactions can be like challenging. You know, you realize that education is a big part of it and just because he looks different doesn't mean you can't talk to him or ask him questions yeah. or, you know, like engage with him. And kids just respond differently. They make comments, but then it's just like, oh, your eyes look funny or you don't see as well. Okay, well, let's just go like, <laughs> let's go down the slide. You yeah. know, it's like, okay, we got that resolved. Now we can move on. To Duly noted. Playing. You know, it's, it's really like, cool obviously there's see. a lot of 
references of Christ talking about children and how they see the world huh. and how they see others. And I think it's just refreshing to kind of see that, how kids have just really embraced, embraced him, him. And mm-hmm. now he's kind of like a little celebrity <laughs> in his elementary school. So first, it's so interesting to me that you had made your living and your work together in photography. And then, you know, you've been in design, which are utterly visual media, but also about, about actually trying to capture and, in a sense, create an, a beautiful appearance of something that, it, you know, is beautiful and, and beautiful moments that people want to be remembered as beautiful. And, and, and to have a child who will not engage with the sighted world in the same way, at least, and will not see in the way that you, in a sense, were mm-hmm. trained to see, it's just, it's str- a striking turn in your life. <laughs> does that resonate or? Yeah. Oh, it definitely does. We had one moment where we, it was the first time we'd taken him to the ocean. We just kind of like went out on the beach and it might sound kind of cheesy or whatever. But what was amazing about the experience is he kind of like, for lack of a better term, like opened our eyes to see the world differently hmm. using like all five of our senses. Because huh. you realize how much in a sighted culture you rely like almost purely on sight. And I was holding him on the beach and you could just tell that he was just like, relaxed and Hmm. enjoying it. Some of those like moments kind of helped us realize that just because we experience it differently doesn't mean that like God didn't give him senses that allow him to like find beauty in creation and experience the world fully. We were kind of going through life. It was somewhat a life of privilege, I guess. We had a good business and like things were just kind Mm. of chugging along and life was easy. And, you know, it's so easy to just find yourself in a place of complacency or whatever you want to call it, where there's not a lot of growth that happens when you're, when things are just easy, but it kind of took this valley experience to kind of rouse us and kind of open our eyes to the world, especially this world of like visual impairment and glasses and all of that, just a space that we would have never imagined ourselves in. I wear glasses and you always remember like those moments when you were like picked on in elementary school. It's so funny. You're just like, why am I a 36 year old man? Like, and I'm still worried about that one person that made a comment to me, you know, in elementary school. I think it was like a big part of kind of why we created Jonas Paul is because of some of those like Uh memories I had of being picked on. I always had dorky glasses and my parents didn't necessarily have like a big budget for glasses. I think when we took Jonas to his first appointment at U of M, the doctor there said, sometimes children with Peter's anomaly do have potential for sight. (laughs) That gave us hope. And that like inspired me. I was like, okay, if he's going to wear glasses, like I want him to look like a little stud muffin. And so we always kind of joke about it, you know, like you do. had our first child who had all these medical needs and we had two businesses. (laughs) Why not start another one? That we know nothing about, but it's okay. But like, no, more like the change. Well, like, how are we actually going to pull this off? We know absolutely nothing about this industry besides you, you know, wearing glasses since you were a kid. But other than that, we really don't know anything. And that kind of scared me a little bit. But I also felt super excited about it. And I felt like... There was not a whole lot we could really do for Jonas besides take him to his appointments and give him his eye drops Mm. and just care for him as best as we could. And we just felt like this was something that we could just use our creativity and our skills. And I feel like it pushed us in ways that 
had all of this not happened, obviously we would have never probably started a children's eyeglass company. But I feel like when you have like personal pain and struggle, especially when it is very close to you, like in our case of having our, our child, I feel like that pushes you in ways that you can't even imagine and can't mm. quite understand until you're in that moment. There can be a tendency with disability to kind of withdraw and maybe almost kind of like go into hiding, so to speak. And I don't blame anyone for that. You know, it's hard to be out in public with when your child doesn't look normal, quote unquote. But I think early on, we were just kind of like, hey, this is Jonas and we have to come to a point of full acceptance. So he never feels like a sense of disappointment from us or anything. And that means just like doing life and pushing our story out there and hoping that maybe it could encourage other people and also just educate people on that it's okay to interact with them and he's a great kid and you know all that. So you had to learn everything, it sounds like like this was not a field you knew much about. What's the thing? I mean, those of us who just buy glasses and don't think very much about it beyond figuring out which ones we like or which ones our trusted friend with fashion sense likes or whatever. <laughs> but you're dealing with like a whole chain. I mean, there's design, yeah. there's production, yeah. there's distribution. What have you had to learn that's been like maybe the hardest piece to get really working? I remember a very oh, yeah. early conversation. I think we were still working on like sketches and exact size measuring because we, again, didn't have any experience in this. So we didn't quite know what exact sizing yeah. we were going to like make these frames fit. And we had a conversation. It went on for like several days. Over, like I, I literally believe it was over two millimeters. Do we do a 15 millimeter uh-huh. bridge across the nose or a 17? And it was like, no joke. It, it was multiple days <laughs> yeah. of us talking about two millimeters. You know, we... Yeah, chalk it up as a learning experience. But I think it was just because we were always like in the digital delivery side. And then, yeah, but then you get into the product <laughs> side and it's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's why. why we did digital delivery <laughs> on things. Yeah, yeah you're, there's manufacturing. Yes. And then there's like more ethical manufacturing. Like you're going to like partner with this manufacturer. We wanted to, I mean, it's a horrible thing to joke about, but it's like we didn't want children working in these factories to make children's glasses. Like we need to really have confidence that our manufacturer is like treating their people well and that it's the whole like supply chain side, kind of making sure you set yourself up so that there aren't like issues down the road. And then like, yeah, down to materials and especially with kids, there's FDA requirements with eyeglasses like that are above and beyond what it is for adults. So making sure, yeah, we're not going to like cause allergic reactions on kids and all these things. And yeah, so there are a lot of layers of complexity. I would say the easiest thing for us was like the website and the photography, because that was kind of more in our wheelhouse. wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. But everything besides that was completely foreign and new. And I think every entrepreneur like can totally relate to this, but you just fake it till you make it. Like, I mean, we would just act like we knew everything about children's glasses and we didn't let's talk about the model a little bit because you know in one sense so i also uh, i'm a little older than you but i also had glasses like by third grade and lots of kids have glasses lots of people make glasses for kids uh it's not like this is an empty field and so you're coming in you have to displace like these big i can only imagine like what the scale is of this industry already and you're trying to offer something different. What has made it possible for you to carve out enough of a niche to 
to survive and grow? Like, what are the key things that differentiate you from all the competition? And I have to think that the big manufacturers in your space are thinking more about fashion and style than they were maybe 20 years ago, although maybe not. I don't know. What, what's it like trying to compete in this already pretty massive, pretty established industry? It's a really great question because it is, it's like kind of one of the only industries where there is like an existing monopoly, really. I mean, by most, and most people would define it as a monopoly. Are, we, are you allowed to say their name? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's been some recent articles, but it's, yeah, it's like, I mean, Luxottica, most people kind of know. They own a lot more than people realize. Yeah. And so, and then own, I mean, to their credit, they've run a great business and like have grown, I mean, massively, but they own like Lens Crafters and Sunglass Hut. Wow. All these different conglomerates, target, target optical. Target optical. So, anyways, with that said, there's a lot of things that had just been kind of like set in place with regards to like the markup for frames and the markup for lenses and the whole kind of experience side of optical. And I mean, no offense to optometrists or anything, but they're the only doctors that actually like sell you the product that they're prescribing. So I think all that to say like that model is kind of what has allowed kind of the more affordable direct to consumer brands in the optical space where it necessarily have the storefronts and the overhead and stuff so we can take a lower margin and we can sell it, you know, direct to you. And then the other side of it too is just especially with kids, like the experience isn't great. Taking kids to any doctor's appointment with other kids in tow and, you know, they've sat there for an hour being kind of poked and prodded and their pupils are dilated and they go out to the, you know, to the opticians. And then it's like a stranger saying, do you like these? Do you like these? And it's like an embarrassing and weird thing for kids. So I think that's part of it too, especially in the kids space is like we've made it where it's like comfortable to do it at home around the people they love, you know, being able to sh- just have frames arrived at your door, your kid can play around with them. They can put them on with different outfits and like see what really fits. I think that's been what people really love about our brand. And I was going to say too, on top of that, I feel like a lot of the optical industry and brands out there have overlooked the specifically the kids space and have kind of dismissed them, I would say, in the sense of it's just, oh, they're kids. They don't really care. Put on any type of frame. They just need to be functional. They'll be fine. I think that was maybe the case at some point in history, but I don't think any longer that that can be the mindset, especially for kids that are growing up in today's society that are highly influenced at such a young age from social media already and just being aware. They're far more aware Hmm. of how they look and and making choices. Yeah. And and just social, social awareness than I was in the eighties. And so I feel like they've just overlooked a pretty hefty market that there's a lot of kids that wear glasses. And I don't feel like there's been brands that have come along and said, we're going to specifically focus on children and making children's glasses look like adults and not necessarily look like the classic kid frame that, as we all know and remember, just is pretty hideous looking. And and I feel like that's been such a a big (laughs) differentiator for us. And I think as our brand has just grown and people connect with it and are excited about it, because I think the mom and the dad today, that's, you know, obviously the ones that are buying our glasses can just resonate with that and see it and understand it. And obviously then the kid feels confident, wants to wear their glasses versus if they feel they don't love them, there's probably a pretty good chance that they're not going to actually even wear the glasses. You know, kind of helps 
flip yeah flip the switch or flip that like mindset of the child because i think a lot of parents when they find out their kids need glasses their mind goes rushing with like oh now are they going to get picked on and so i think that's part of it too is like creating like an exciting experience for the kid then they go to school and they're like no these are actually cool glasses and then their whole class wants glasses what has growth looked like and you could take this in a couple different ways i mean you could talk about just how has the business grown in terms of the things you measure, but I'm also kind of wondering how has it grown in terms of what you've, you've had to do and learn, uh, and what have been some of the like accelerator moments, like the really positive moments and what have been some of the speed bumps, uh, as you've grown. I think there were some big milestones, I guess, along the way we kind of self-funded it in the beginning for the first couple of years. And then not just because this is the Praxis podcast, like Praxis was a really instrumental experience in our life. I just kind of changing the trajectory because going through that, we kind of went in feeling like, okay, you know, we'll see, we were still running our other businesses. Those were kind of the core of our income and effort and kind of just wanted to get into this community and just kind of get almost like validation. Like, is this something we should pursue? Is this worthy of pursuing? Could we meet the right people that could kind of help us like really push into it and you know, we kind of always along the way, we're like, well, if we meet the right people who like have industry experience and also maybe want to provide capital to help us grow it, then we'll consider kind of like diving in, you know, headfirst in this. And yeah, so we did a, a small seed round in 2015, August of 2015. And that was what allowed us to actually really focus on Jonas Paul. And so we still had this like challenge of we had a couple other businesses that we kind of needed to, you know, we, you know, had like over a thousand customers on our website platform. So was, we couldn't just be like, Oh, sorry. You know, but could we interest you in some Yeah. Good luck with your website. Do you have children that need glasses? So anyway, so we, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, we actually photo up ended up acquiring our website company, which was another Praxis venture. And so I feel like this, just this whole community kind of allowed us, you know, I'm sure it was obviously God's provision throughout all of this where it's like, okay, we need capital. We need people with industry experience. Oh, and we also have these businesses we can't run anymore if we're going to focus on this. And <laughs> I mean, the biggest challenges have been like, you know, previously we kind of always ran more like lifestyle businesses, you know, not necessarily with a need for scaling quickly uh, or claiming our airspace, we could kind of just organically grow them. Uh, and it's just a completely different model when you feel like you have this niche business at the right time without anyone else really like heavily investing in it. And how do you run fast and claim your airspace so that you can establish yourself kind of as the children's eyewear company? Fortunately, you know, we've been able to continue to scale. We've been averaging about 300% growth annually since about 2015 and yeah now recently have landed some large like national retailer accounts and it's not like we've made it by any by any sense (laughs) because every time i think that's another struggle that entrepreneurs go through as you we all kind of create these milestones then as soon as you achieve that it feels like sometimes it's like a moving (laughs) target where oh now we're on to the next one and you you feel like you can't even like celebrate in that success because immediately you're shifted to the next targets. That drives us at the same time, as much as sometimes I want to stop and just, and we, and I do feel like we've gotten better at stopping and taking a moment, even if it's brief, but just like celebrating those victories (laughs) because those are really big. And 
and then feeling like, okay, now let's keep going. And like, and I think that just like drives you and that motivates you day in and day out to come in and keep working. Cause otherwise yeah, you never really arrive, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Totally. Yeah. But now it's cool to just see like, you know, we're sitting in our office and just see like the employees with, you know, we've gotten to that stage where we're now hiring people and it's just cool to see, you know, we're up to a team of 15 employees now and I always kind of dreamed of like creating something that could provide a living for others and create a culture and just create like a great work environment for people. And I feel like we're mm-hmm. achieving that, which is cool. Just another exciting yeah. thing for me yeah. too. I feel like every new hire, it's like, Oh, like it's scary. Cause you know, you're bringing more people kind of yeah. into this, like somewhat, it's still a small group of people, you know, in comparison to some other companies, but it still just feels like this is a really very, very personal thing for Ben and I. And to feel like we're kind of continuing to just like open that up to more and more. And I think it's super, it it drives us and it makes me so excited, but it also kind of freaks me out at the same time because it just, you know, the bigger you get, the different challenges you experience and even from just a team standpoint and but, but it's I, been encouraging too I think with because obviously with us our faith is a big part of why we started and is kind of interwoven in all the different aspects of our business from how we treat customers to also like obviously our buy site give site like our impact side of the business and all of that and I think it's just been cool to see how we can really run a faith-based like culturally I would say like with how we do everything type of work environment but that we have employees with different belief systems and nobody feels like alienated. And it just, I think it's created also this like safe place to share your faith just because we do often. And like in, you know, scenarios like this, we have different talks we do. And so people obviously know that we have this belief system, but it's cool to see that you can kind of have that integration of faith and work that also doesn't alienate people who are working in that space who have different beliefs. What do you feel like is a big place where your faith is tested in the work you're doing now? So in a sense, you had this experience, I would think, where your faith in some sense was really tested and reframed when Jonas was born. But now that you're building this business, where do you sense like, oh, here's now where we have to really continue to trust or obey or pursue a kind of holiness that it would be easy not to pursue. I don't know. I, th- I feel like as we continue on and see God's provision in the business, it just continues to like, I guess, kind of strengthen our faith that like, this is Big what call. we're meant to be doing. But at the same time, I guess the biggest thing I would say maybe from a like testing standpoint would be like, if this business does fail, just making sure that like our belief system almost isn't like wrapped up in this where like, this is God's provision that this is what we're supposed to be doing. And if it fails, like where does that lead us? And still trying to like hold on to the business, like somewhat loosely. I always kind of say that like, you know, it's very personal to us and it's obviously our son's name is on it and all of that. But I think we created it so that it's like, you know, it started with our story, but now it's, Joey's story and, you know, Susie's story and all of that. And kind of the hope that we could start with our core story, but then it could become something much bigger that it's a lot of individual stories. So we, we've been thinking at Praxis about what really redemptive means, what redemption is. And we've ended up feeling like this phrase, creative restoration through sacrifice, 
captures a lot of what redemption is, maybe not everything, but that somehow when things are redeemed, there's a restoration that happens. Something that was lost is is back in some some way, but it's often like more than it was, you know. So even the redemption of humanity doesn't just sort of take us back to the garden and back to a, a previous state, but actually unfolds new creative possibilities in the world and in our own stories. And then it always happens through sacrifice, through someone giving up something of value. What feels like has been restored in maybe in your lives, or what do you see being restored as you do this work? And then I am really interested in kind of what are some of the sacrifices, maybe the ones we wouldn't guess or imagine that come with doing what you are trying to do, and that are actually essential for what you're trying to do? As far as the topic of even just sacrifice, I feel like we probably can be, you know, pretty honest. We are in this together just as we are married, you know, and, and I feel like our marriage with, with this business has had a lot of challenges and, but a lot of beautiful like moments at the same time that we can celebrate together. And I feel like as a married couple, we've had to make just a lot of sacrifices in general to make this. And it's been hard, but it's been beautiful. And I feel like God's kind of just walked along that with us, not only from the beginning with Jonas and all of the surgeries that we were in. And I think probably any other married couple that starts something together from the beginning and kind of goes along the path at the same speed (laughs) would also be, you know, probably say the same exact thing that it's, you give up a lot of things, but you also have your biggest fans in the corner. Yeah. I, well, I kind of, I had this quote, I sometimes quote in like presentations or whatever, a Frederick Buechner quote where he said, the first ministers were the 12 disciples. There's no evidence that Jesus chose them because they were brighter or nicer than other people. Their sole qualification seems to be their initial willingness to rise to their feet when Jesus said, follow me. And when Jesus sent the 12 disciples out into the world, his instructions were simple. He told them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. I bring that up because I think in entrepreneurship or when you get that initial like itch to start something, I think the people that really can make that impact are the ones like it's not that we had these qualifications, like we didn't have, you know, 30 years of optical experience (laughs) and diving into this. Like, I think like our sole qualification was to say like, God, we don't know why you allowed this to happen to Jonas or why he was born this way. But we have faith that it's so the works of God could be displayed in his life. And we're just going to follow into that and push into that. And we feel like you've given us this passion for something. And I think it's encouraging to just see the people Jesus chose, like a fisherman. And, you know, it's like it wasn't that they were fully qualified. It was more just like their willingness to say, like, yes, I'll follow you into this as scary as it is, as much sacrifice as there's going to be, you know, we believe you're behind this and we believe that for whatever reason, you've kind of called us to do this. So, so I think all that to say, I think that just kind of mindset encourages us just that we're going to screw up some days, but in the end, like the end game is like, really it is this like transformative kind of entrepreneurship or business where we really want to like transform kids' lives whether it's just giving something as simple as like them loving their glasses and being confident and not picked on in them and just feeling beautiful to also then just with the childhood blindness prevention, like the thought of being able to literally change the trajectory of a kid's life. If you can prevent blindness, 
So I have one last question. This is not a trick question, definitely, but it is a hard question. And I don't know what might come to mind, but I, I didn't think of it until I watched the video on your site that just, it's, you know, the short video that gives a little bit of your personal story and origin story in a way. It ends, if I remember the last frame, it, it has this line, see beauty everywhere. I was thinking about how both of you, your work all along together in, in your various businesses has been about beauty. And we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. But I'm wondering how you see beauty now, <laughs> five years into the story with your son, also with this kind of mission. What do you know about beauty now, or what do you see about beauty now that you maybe didn't see uh, in all those years of being trained and, and learning to make beautiful images and to you know, design beauty and to notice and assess? But what are you learning about beauty? I would say, I mean, one, one aspect would be just like, more beauty in God's creation, both with humans and their like ability to adapt to whatever senses they have or whatever, and yeah. still experience the world fully. So I would say kind of beauty in that sense where I, I think, you know, Jonas has kind of made the world more beautiful for us too, just in sounds and smells and things that he calls out that we kind of, you know, would otherwise overlook. I'd say that's one aspect of it. I would say, Another aspect of beauty, I would say to a certain extent is like this kind of community we're a part of now with family member with special needs. I think there's just like, when you see like the parents and the siblings and how they like interact, I think there's just something beautiful about that. I think having someone with special needs as a part of like your close family or court group or whatever it really does change you for the better and just like how you respond to people, how you see the world, your patience level, all these different things. So I think that's been kind of a world that we weren't necessarily aware of, but now that we're kind of a part of this community, there's just a lot of like beautiful people who are out there, like, you know, kind of having to suffer in different at various levels. And I really do think, you know, admittedly just before Jonas was born and obviously being photographers and being in the business of making people or helping people feel beautiful or, you know, looking beautiful in images and all of that. I think I'm just like more accepting and more open to like really getting to know people that maybe otherwise I would have been hesitant if they didn't look like me or didn't whatever. I just think there's like beauty and experiencing like how amazing Jonas is despite his appearance or how he looks different from other kids, et cetera. Yeah, I was going to say too, not that we know a whole, personally a whole lot of people in our very close network of people that have family members with special needs, but we didn't know if we even wanted to have more kids after him because we were a little scared that it could happen again because we were told that it might happen again or even possibly worse with a future child. And that was the Lord's, I mean, we got pregnant with Sophie and we we're not planning it. And I remember praying when I found out she was going to be a girl. I pray she is a strong girl to, to help her brother. And she doesn't quite know mm. what, what she's got in store as far as, you know, just having mm. a sibling that, that needs extra help. Everything that is so easy for her is five times, 10 times harder for Jonas. And, and it's been all of that to say, it's just been, a, such a blessing for me as their mom to see this little three and a half year old girl come alongside her brother and to think how her life will be different 
had her brother been born with totally normalized and could navigate just as easy as she can and and how she's going to be a different person because of it and like having Sophie there to be a part of this and um and be his biggest fan is just something that I think as a parent it's just it's beautiful Laura Harrison she and her husband Ben are the founders of Jonas Paul Eyewear Laura's last words there it's beautiful what's beautiful is becoming a certain kind of person. The kind of person that Sophie will become, the kind of person Jonas Paul is becoming, the kind of persons that Ben and Laura have become. This takes us to the heart of what's really beautiful in the world. If you want to learn more, you can see some kids with beautiful glasses at JonasPaulEyewear, all one word, .com. And there's a really great video on their site called It All Began With Jonas that's worth watching. We'll link to it in our show notes as well. This is the second to last episode of the season of The Redemptive Edge. In our final episode for this season, you're going to get to hear the voices of two of my collaborators. Our producer, Mary Elizabeth Cadell, who in her day job is community manager for Praxis, and our executive producer, Scott Kaufman, Praxis partner for content. If you want to know more about what we do in our day jobs, you can visit us at praxislabs.org. Praxislabs, all one word, .org. And if you're enjoying this season, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Your comments are so encouraging and helpful to us as we think about what's coming next. As always, we're very grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Redemptive Edge.